The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, a star of the English sparkling wine scene whose pedigree is distinctly French. Corinne Seely began her career at Bordeaux's Chateau Lynchbarge, but has made Hampshire her home as wine director at Exton Park. We'll find out why she believes English wine is the future. Plus, as ever, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Her winemaking pedigree is distinctly French. A chemistry graduate, her first job was at Chateau Lynchbarge, some place to start. And she's made wine all over the world, from Australia to the Douro Valley. Yet Corinne Seeley has chosen to make England her home. Wine director at Hampshire's Exton Park estate for more than a decade now. She's an evangelist for English sparkling wine and a great believer in the power of patience crafting distinctive reserve wine-led cuvées, more on that in a moment, uh, that are rapidly winning acclaim. And I'm delighted to say that uh, Corinne has torn herself away from the winery and uh, those reserve tanks uh, to talk to us now. Um, Corinne, thanks very much for joining The Drinking Hour. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm uh, delighted to have you and to talk to you about uh, your uh, philosophy. But let's go back to the start, uh, first of all. Uh, so I mentioned there you're really a, a scientist by training. Mm, certainly in my early days. Um, however, it didn't last long. Actually, it all started um, when I was a little girl um, and uh, our family holidays um, um, was in the south of France, and uh, our, our annual jeet uh, was located in the middle of a vineyard, and I used to play in, in the winery, and everything fascinated me, and the smell, and, you know, the, the atmosphere there. And uh, as a French person, uh, I grew up in a family that likes to cook, and to eat, and to drink, and to be merry, and... Uh, all three were very important to us. So, yes, scientifics, perhaps, but not fundamentally. How important do you think a really good knowledge of science is to winemaking? A wine is alive. Obviously, you have to be cautious. However, um, making wine is not a recipe. David, you don't have a recipe to make love, not me any, anyway. So yes, I, I'm, I guess that being scientific gives you um, the fact to be rigorous and to really base uh, your, um, the way you make things uh, straight. However, you need a part of creation. You need to be an artist to, to, to make wine. I mean, it's, it's like doing a sculpture or painting. If it is only a science and recipe, you won't get far. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you paint a, a lovely picture of, of 
playing in the the winery and uh, amidst the vines uh, as a as, ch- as a child as well. I don't think I'd set foot in a winery until I was well into my twenties. <laughs> but that's uh, that's where I grew up and you grew up, and that's different. But uh, of course, where I grew up is now at the centre of a kind of new wine world. And we'll come to that in a second. But I just want to talk a bit about where you started your professional career because Chateau Lynch-Barge, great Bordeaux estate for those who don't know, um, it's one hell of a place to to start really, isn't it? Yes, I think uh, I've been terribly spoiled in a way because all started when I decided to apply um, to the University of Energy in Bordeaux. I wasn't, uh, my background was not from Bordeaux. And basically, um, my application was refused uh, um, by the headmaster. I wasn't from Bordeaux. And uh, basically speaking, I was a woman, David. <laughs> mm. So obviously, I, I couldn't change the second point. Um, but I could do something about the first one. I had a good friend, uh, whom the uncle was the owner of Chateau Lynchpage. Jean-Michel proposed me to come um, and uh, I did my training over there. I mean, that, uh, that was very lucky indeed. And what did you learn at Chateau Lynchpage? I learned a lot. I learned a lot and never stopped since then. I, uh, I learned to roll my sleeves, certainly. I learned also to work closely with the vineyard team. Uh, you have to think that Lynch Barge is in the Medoc, in near Bordeaux, and it's surrounded by, I think, 130 hectares of vines. So yes, to be in the vineyard, uh, heard, uh, of being in the winery, and uh, to work with the team, uh, to share experiences and to, to have the will to, to work hard uh, and then to be innovative. Uh, it was fascinating. I really, really have um, fantastic memories uh, to work with such a great team, really. And you must have shown some considerable determination because you mentioned there that basically the fact that you were a, a woman, uh, 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 that, that, was, um, that was an obstacle to you at that time. I hope it might not be now, I, I don't know. But um, what did you, how, how did you manage to sort of, uh, to, to, to resist that sort of pressure for you not to do it, to, to, to push forward uh, with that determination that you've shown? That's a very, very uh, good point. Uh, well, uh, there are always challenging challenges in any job particularly when you are a woman in a male-dominated industry. And this was definitely the case when I started my career. It is still a male-dominated industry today, but much less so than before. In England, uh, I was asking uh, TB Wines um, not so long um, ago that how many women are winemakers you know in England I don't think there are a lot um maybe nine ten eleven it's it's not a lot I have been very lucky to be surrounded by uh, supportive people in the early days of my career and they recognized my ability you know which gave me confidence in myself after working at Lynchbage, I became one of the first young female winemakers at the head of a Grand Cru Classé in Bordeaux, Domaine de Chevalier. And uh, this was a moment in time that I will never forget. It gave me, you know, the strength, the courage for the rest of my journey. 
it has been a long, it's still a long journey. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't believe anyone uh, who have said to me a long time ago that I was going to become a French winemaker walking and making English sparkling wine really uh, would have been a joke. Well, it's uh, it is pretty extraordinary, actually, the fact that you're uh, you have this this French pedigree and that you're in England. And I'm going to come to that in a minute because I'm sort of teasing it out. But in the meantime, you went and made wine elsewhere in the world as well, didn't you? You've got some quite considerable uh, experience on your uh, CV from uh, leading wineries elsewhere in the world. What did you learn there? Where did you go, first of all? And what did you learn? Mm. I have been for years uh, what we call uh, a flying winemaker at the time and uh, around the world. I studied um, chemistry and soils, so I've been discovering all the different regions and terroir around the world, meeting people and sharing experiences. I always I still believe that you need to be curious to to make your own way, your own decisions. And so it has been it has been my journey until I finally meet England and the terror of England and the climate of England. And it's because of having been a flying winemaker that I, I knew that England and particularly Hampshire and Exton Park have something special. Yes, um, I think a life never stopped. Um, your journey um, is still different every day. Um, I believe that. And you cannot really decide in advance what, what it's going to be. And mm. England has been a fantastic surprise for me. I bet, yeah. I mean, uh, j just for those who don't know what a flying winemaker is, basically a, a consultant who comes into a, uh, a, into a different country or a different place um, and advises them on how to make their wines. That's, that's basically a flying winemaker, isn't it? Yes, it is indeed, yes. And um, I believe that it gives you the, 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 the chance to... Yes, to, to really recognize uh, the different soils and different vines and variety of grapes and the clones. And, because um, now, obviously, Australia for the young, uh, young people and New Zealand, and they, it seems to be old. But uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it wasn't the case at all. Uh, we didn't have mobiles. You Internet didn't exist. So when you... When you flew to uh, Australia, um, I mean, the only way to talk to your friends uh, was very expensive, so you didn't. And to write a letter uh, took, um, yeah, two weeks uh, from mm. Australia to France, for example. So it was a privilege, really a luxury, to be able to, to, to do that at the time. Yeah, I bet. So what attracted you then to the shores of England? How did you first end up here? <laughs> the first time I tasted uh, some English sparkling wines um, was a tasting with the Master of Wines in London back to 2008. And I have to confess, don't repeat it, uh, We nobody's recording at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> They they were quite surprisingly not good. I mean, quite acidic. 
uh, on balance, uh, some people making malolactic fermentation to make the, the wine softened and no, completely unbalanced. And I wasn't attracted at all by them. And uh, that is why I um, considered the challenge to make something different. When I visited Exton Park, um, Exton Park is located in the Mion Valley. Um, it, it has a panoramic view. It is very windy there. Uh, it's a big slope. I fell in love with the place. And um, it was a tiny vineyard at the time I visited it. So when I started to make wines um, and vinify wines from different regions in England, uh, from Hampshire, but also from Dorset and, uh, and Sussex and Kent, uh, I was a consultant at the time. I knew the potential of Exton Park. I knew the potential of the chalky soil from Hampshire. So when uh, the founder of the project, Malcolm Isaac, asked me uh, to, to come to build a winery and to literally um, make the project happen, I didn't say no. I mean, it's fascinating that um, to create, to create um, literally uh, a story. And that is what attracted you to stay then, is it? Because you know, you've already said you weren't initially that impressed by what you were tasting at that time. Exactly. Um, and I knew that it was challenging and it will be challenging. At the same time, I knew because uh, of my journey and because I was, you know, I've been in, in that world uh, of uh, the wine, I knew the potential of the souls. I knew that. And, um, and the first time I had the chance to make a Chardonnay from Exton Park, um, before the winery even was built, it, it, it was really special. I really, uh, you know, you know that, you know, it's like when you cook something and you know you succeed to, to do something special. Uh, every every person in in the world knows that you you know when you do something special, and uh, that is why I'm still here because obviously uh, it's just the start of something. Uh, we haven't yet achieved everything, I believe, and uh, it's just um, the beginning of a fantastic story. It is. I passionately believe that too and I was talking on this program a month ago to Dermot Sugru who uh, you will know very well and we were talking about how incredibly exciting it is to be um, at the beginning of the story of English sparkling wine presumably you really feel that as well definitely even if England uh, is obviously uh, old country part of uh, the old world the wine industry in English is just blossoming. We certainly uh, consider that we are entering, for me, the third phase of the English wine industry. The first phase was certainly when people planted uh, the first vineyard um, in England 40, 50 years ago now. And then, obviously, uh, they invest in in, uh, in the wineries, equipment. Um, it takes time. Um, and then now, now I think people certainly are recognizing English sparkling as English. 
and no more, I hope, a copy of a pale champagne. Well, I was just going to come to that because uh, people do still compare it uh, these days very favourably with champagne. Uh, but do you think it's time to stop comparing it to champagne and treat it as something special in its own right? Because I am the French winemaker making wine in England, I think I have the right to say that, yes, we have to stop it. Uh, that ridiculous comparison, easy comparison, obviously champagne could easily always be the obvious comparison to English sparkling wines because of the similarities of the geology of the Tutewa. However, uh, uh, there are so many different parameters like sunshine and rainfall, you know, even the density of, uh, of the plantations. Uh, in Champagne, um, basically, you have 8,000 vines per hectare. In England, for some of the, the vineyards, it's, uh, it's less than 4,000 vines per hectare. So, yes, let's stop making that, um, even if it, is, it has been attractive at the beginning to compare the two categories, I really believe that it, it, has, to be the, it has to be now the moment that people recognize that, yes, English sparkling wines have got their own identity. I really believe that Exton Park has won its own personality of wines and, uh, and definitely not a champagne at all. The level of acidity, for example, is so much higher in, in English sparkling that because of that, it is, it is a quality, it becomes a quality because the wines can age better. And uh, obviously, the, 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 that acidity lifts the, the, the flavors. And uh, it's, it's, it's certainly a new category of wines. And it has to be recognized, David. It's the moment. It really does feel that way. Um, Exton Park, uh, you mentioned it um, uh, the the, the uh, geology there uh, briefly. Um, I've not been, but I have seen it virtually when we were all uh, doing um, virtual tastings during oh, lockdown. Oh, yes, and, I uh, do remember that. That it, was great. Yes, it yeah. was. It was great. And one of your colleagues in the viticulture team was on the back of a, a pickup yes. truck with a camera <laughs> showing us the vines. It looks very, very beautiful there. Uh, tell is. us a bit more about the vineyard and tell us about the character of Exton Park wines, because you touched on that, that distinctive character just now. Tell us more about that. So we've got now 24 hectares. Uh, it's a single vineyard. It is very important for me because in England, a lot of uh, wines are made by uh, blends um, across the country. And uh, it can take uh, two or three hours to bring the grapes into the winery. At Exton Park, we have the, the chance to have the winery located at the top of the vineyard. And this is a great asset because it takes only five to 10 minutes to bring the grapes into the winery. And we can keep that, you know, um, that freshness better than um, to, to some other places. So that is great. So 24 hectares in a big, big slope. Uh, so we have the vineyard, the top vineyard is uh, around 120 meters above sea level and the bottom at 60 meters. And it is great because uh, it really um, gives different uh, soils and top and subsoils. 
at the top of the vineyard, you, you have only maybe 10, 10 to 15 centimeters of top soils. I, uh, I never saw that kind of uh, calcare active um, in a soil. Even, you know, even in France and Côte de Blanc, um, it's rare. And uh, the vines are struggling. I, I'm very surprised that they can grow there because it's pure choke. So obviously, uh, because of that, the concentration into the grapes is fantastic. Uh, you can really taste them. Uh, and at the bottom, we have less, uh, maybe not less chalk, but more, uh, more top soils. And that gives another aspect of flavors. So finally, at the end, I blend. I'm also a blender, but I blend the, the different wine um, that makes obviously different wines. And I put them together, but it is from the same, the same vineyard. And this is absolutely fascinating because you tasted the wines and you told me that they are great, thank you. But you have to think that they come from they come sorry from the same vines. So it's fascinating to think that you know, the same vines can give such a diversity of different wines just by blending the wines differently. It's uh, that the way you blend is also really quite different to many others because English sparkling wine has evolved in a way that has been vintage specific. Whereas of course, uh, Champagne and other places around the world uh, that make traditional method quite often are uh, led by non-vintage. You've taken a, a slightly different approach, haven't you? I always, and I still do not believe that it is possible to make vintage uh, sparkling wine in England every year. It is not an understatement to say that your weather in England can be quite uh, unpredictable and uh, yes you could say you, that again yeah you you can have w four seasons in one day i do remember in 2000 uh, was 2018 i think um we had up to 37 degrees celsius during the summer and just before we start harvest in september and the number we had during the night minus one I mean, this is quite something. And uh, because of that, obviously, it is still challenging to make high premium quality wines. And for that, I decided uh, to, yes, to, to build a library of reserve wines over the years to help me to maintain a consistency in the style and the quality of Exton Park wines that people, you know, can recognize um, um, a, a taste into the wines. That yes, oh, you see Exton Park in in a in a in a wine list in a restaurant, you know what you expect the wines to be. It is. It was very important. It's still very important. But David, it takes age to do it, and um, obviously. We started the, the old project years ago, um, but it's only now that people can really taste our wines. It's very new. It does feel very new to me as someone who, who's a great enthusiast for uh, English sparkling wine. Um, and it feels like a new name, and yet it was established uh, in 2008, I think. Um, and this is because you've been basically uh, nursing 
those reserve wines for quite a while, haven't you? Exactly. And um, we realized recently that uh, the way uh, we were making wine at Exton Park was quite different than in other places. Basically, um, even if people now um, make more uh, non-vintage wines that they were making earlier, they still used um, the last harvest and then they top up uh, with uh, some older wines. At Exton Park, I, um, I use mainly the, the reserve wines um, in, in the blends. In the, in the RB45, for example, our Chardonnay reserve blend, it's only made with reserve. You have wines um, um, in it uh, that were made uh, at the right beginning of uh, the story of Exton Park. And uh, this is for me very special because you have the taste of um, different years and, and then still uh, the maturity that uh, age in, in vats. Um, and uh, it, it, it has to be precise because you you have to be very careful. As I said at the beginning, a wine is alive. So um, you cannot control it if you don't be rigorous. So that is the part of the scientist that is in me. And then the, the other part of being a, an artist, because obviously you don't know uh, in advance um, uh, how the blend is going to be. And yet it has to be the same over the years that people recognize the, the taste and the, the style. So you, you have to think that at the moment we, we bottled, for example, um, the last blends in June, people won't drink them before another five years. Yeah, well, that's... Uh... Uh, it, it requires incredible resource as well. I'm just looking back at my tasting notes from yes. um, a year or so ago. So we had the um, uh, Exton Park RB28 Blanc de Noir. We had the yes. Exton Park RB32 Reserve Brut. And we had the Exton Park RB23 Rosé. Uh, my favourite actually at the time was uh, the Blanc de Noir because it had that emphatic English signature with that uh, acidity those wines the way they're labeled as i recall uh, number relates to the number of different reserve wines in the cuvee doesn't it you are absolutely right david so it um it is the reference of the average average uh, number of wine i blend yes in 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 the wine definitely yeah yeah so how many different reserve wines do you have at your disposal uh, to make a blend then? I have been very lucky as a winemaker um, because um, Malcolm, our founder, believed in a project in a way that um, he, it was a big gamble at the beginning uh, to invest uh, in all these uh, um, re reserve vats uh, because it's a lot of cash and uh, but uh, at the end, it's the only way to really um, enable you to keep separated all the different plots of the winery and of the vineyard in the winery. So basically, the winery we've got uh, is the um, kind of the uh, reflection of the puzzle of the vineyard. Uh, so it really enables to to keep separated all the beautiful um, 
wines we can make uh, sometimes. So obviously, at at some point, you need to to pre-blend. Uh, I don't have a uh, 300 watts, okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, however, um, I've still some wines um, completely separated from 2014-15. This is amazing. This is really amazing. It's a bit of an, of an headache uh, the day you start uh, your blends when you have all these different wines in front of you. And I don't have a recipe, so I always taste blind. And uh, and then and I, I, I form the puzzle in my head. And, uh, and then I... It's almost you. It's almost tasting in your head or smelling in your head. I have the memories of the taste of the wines in my head. And this is also like cooking, I suppose, in that you're, uh, if you're cooking a, um, uh, and I'm an enthusiastic cook rather than necessarily an accomplished cook, I, I should say. But I imagine that you just think, oh, that needs a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, and you know um, what you've got within your your larder if you like uh, with all of those reserve wines so you're bringing uh, just different things into the mix uh, as as you seek to blend something that hits exactly what you're you're, you're trying to create correct um yeah um it's that complexity of of the reserve blends um that the wines give me i mean even five percent sometimes of uh Pinot Meunier uh, can really reveal uh, the intensity of the blend. Um, I love it. I really, yes, it's it's like cooking and it's it's like my spices, basically. My reserves ones are the spices of the blends. <laughs> yeah, it's one hell of a spice rack as well, isn't it, to be honest? But uh, you're, you're, as you say, it, it's uh, you've earned it, but you're also uh, very fortunate to have uh, the resources you have at your disposal. Tell us a bit about Malcolm, because he made his uh, fortune in bagged salads uh, in Hampshire, things like watercress, which is one of my favourite sort of English products, actually. And uh, he was very much behind that. And of course, loads of watercress is grown near you uh, in the Mion Valley. He made his money there, but he's really very passionate about English wine, isn't he? He's a pioneer. He's, um, he's someone I respect indefinitely uh, because yes he always believes that terroir can really bring something different he did it with the with the watercress he has done it uh, with uh, Exton Park and without uh, his vision and the fact that uh, he believed that yes uh, it was possible, it will be possible to make Exton Park becoming one of the best ambassadors of England without him and his perception. Nothing would have happened. And uh, I really, uh, I mean, I, I have um, speechless uh, uh, to thank him. Um, um, yeah, it's, it, it has been a fantastic adventure and still is. Um, but now we are in a second phase of Extend Park because now we have created uh, the reserve wines. Uh, we we have made our personality, we have made uh, Extend Park to be uh, out of age. And, uh, and now people can taste it and, uh, and can, can recognize it. So, yeah. And when I was on my uh, Zoom tour, um, the the buildings were still under construction, I remember. Uh, oh, one yes. of the buildings was looked like a cathedral going up. So um, yes. your building work, that's now complete, is it? 
it is complete. It it has taken so many years, uh, um, but yes, it is complete. And Exton uh, all um, is a masterpiece uh, where people will uh, enjoy um, a new lifestyle. I'm guessing uh, authentic, being in a vineyard um, near the wines, uh, near the vines is really at the top of everything and uh it's a beautiful beautiful um all and uh, yeah you should come back mm, i shall oh definitely and it's quite interesting dermot and i were talking about this the other day as well mm -hmm. um, tourism is rapidly becoming um, a very important part of the english wine scene isn't it you know bringing people in to taste uh, to eat in certain places to look around um, the English wine scene is really opening itself up to visitors, isn't it? I can see it. Uh, yes, um, it is uh, a new wave. Um, and because now, as we were seeing earlier, people are now recognising that England has got a different style and is a new category of bubbles, then yes, it attracts uh, around the world to visit and to understand more um, about uh, that different new style. So yes, tourism, enotourism uh, in England uh, will be part of uh, the life uh, in, in the future, I'm guessing, definitely, yes. And how important do you think it is to be open to people like that? Because historically, I don't know if it's changed, but historically, if you went around uh, Bordeaux, for example, a place that you know well, um, it wasn't very easy um, to go to a winery, even to taste, but certainly to look around or, or to learn more. Um, and yet elsewhere in the world, Napa springs to mind, uh, New Zealand, it's actually very easy to go and learn more. Do you think there's something valuable for England to do in that kind of sort of sphere of openness? England has got a fantastic chance with uh, the wine industry because England can effectively uh, not be only an island, but also an open island and be seen like this from the world. We understand I am French and uh, obviously I've seen the Brexit. Maybe the wine industry will bring the people back together. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, another thing that England is doing a lot about at the moment um, is sustainability and you're a part of uh, wine gb's um, sustainability program just tell us a little bit about what you do at exton park in the vineyards in terms of sustainability so fred langdale our vineyard manager uh, always was keen on doing uh, sustainability uh, in the vineyard it, it has been a big part very important it's since the beginning, to really respect, uh, respect the vineyard, respect the environment, the nature, make sure that uh, we minimize in any kind of intervention. Obviously, we still need to spray um, because of the disease and the, the weather, that is uh, very unpredictable weather in England. However, we've got um, cover crops now um ed fred did some trials with grass uh, we have we've got bees because we've got hives um we we really try to to be very respectful and uh, with with our vineyard to be yes 
to, to really, how can I say, um, yeah, I, I told you to, to, to avoid any extra intervention. Um, so that is why now, yes, we succeeded to um, become a member of the sustainability scheme with 1GB. Yeah, it's two years now. Tell me a bit about Pinot Mernier. Uh, in England, because in Champagne, um, it's sort of like widely regarded as probably the lesser of the three Champagne grapes or the main three Champagne grapes. Um, and yet a lot of people get very, very excited about Pinot Mernier in England. And I actually tasted uh, last night uh, your plot for Exton Park uh, Pinot Meunier. Oh, uh, did you? Rose. I'm very, very um, happy. <laughs> this is coming to the market at the end of July. Um, yes, tell, yes. tell us about that and tell us about Meunier in England. Thank you very much for having tasted it. I'm very, very happy because I'm full of hope with our Pinot Meunier Rosé and finger crossed that uh, all our efforts in the vineyard uh, with um, with Fred and his team will show with the wine. So you understand that Exton Park is a single vineyard and that wine comes from so one single vineyard, uh, one variety of grapes, the Pinot Meunier, and from one parcel at the top of the vineyard, uh, certainly the most chalky part actually, uh, pruned in Chablis system. So looking like the wind uh, was blowing it. Very, very low uh, yield. And yes, I agree with you that uh, Pinot Meunier is certainly the forgotten variety of grapes, especially in Champagne, always, almost always blended with others. For me, it is a sleeping beauty. And uh, I really believe that uh, Chalk and Pinot Meunier are fantastic, great friends. When we believed the first Pinot Meunier, um, it was uh, early uh, and people were amazed by uh, the, the different taste that it gives. And uh, so this one, Plot 4, was very special to me because it comes from Warsaw yet has been disgorged two years ago now. So because obviously we were thinking of raising it uh, before the pandemic arrived. Actually, I, I, I found that uh, the, the undercook age gave a maturity to the wine um, that really, you will tell me, but for me, it's, we, we, Overcrossed now the freshness and the, the flavors of the early Pinot Meunier, we we now taste almost um, a scent in it, spices, something completely a palate completely different than normally you do. What what do you think? What what is your um, yes your notes about uh, the tasting? Oh well, it's just an incredible freshness uh, which. Um, it comes to be the the hallmark of of English sparkling wine, but yes, there's um, there's that kind of um, textural. Um, uh, one of my favourite apples is a russet apple, and there's that sort of textural uh, russet apple thing, and then there's uh, yet yeah, sort of apple, almost baked apple spice as well. Um, and this is all um, sort of wrapped up with uh, some some you know uh, some, some kind of gentle um, 
uh, red fruit as well. It, it's uh, it, it's it's really lovely, and um, I, I'm guessing uh, could could last a very long time as well. Exactly, I do remember making a special wine from Malcolm in 2011, actually on the first day of uh, of the harvest, 11th of October 2011, made with 80% of Pinot Meunier. Still there, it's fantastic. It doesn't. It doesn't get oxidized or, you know, honey or not at all. It's still fresh. And thanks to the acidity of the wine, that wine you are you tasted yesterday, the Pinot Meunier Rosé that we are going to release, is, uh, is uh, just above three in terms of pH. And uh, so it's, it's very, very refreshing. But yet also it, it, it has that savory that uh, that's uh, yes you know the it's it's almost slightly salted you know a kind of uh, salted caramel. Mm-hmm. I'm still wondering if the choke we've got at Exton Park is has got an impact into the wine. I think so, David. I really think because um, it's in all the wines, but especially with the Pinot Meunier, you, you've got it. I don't know if you if you found it, but I I do find it. Mm, yeah, there's a definitely um, what uh, we wine people call minerality but you know i always translate that as sort of to those who don't speak wine speak kind of minerality to me is is sort of um uh, mountain stream wet pebbles basically that that kind of um (laughs) lovely kind of pebbly um sort of granity smoothness and and it's there um in uh in hampshire um and you know sussex and kent as well i think but it's uh hampshire has, has has a very special uh, kind of uh, tell well. Where are you, by the way, um, about how you describe English sparkling wine? Because uh, people, uh, you know, Sussex now has a PDO, and that that, that some people agree with that, some people don't. Um, Hampshire uh, doesn't yet. Uh, Kent doesn't yet. Um, what do you think um, English sparkling wine is going to end up being called? Compared to the international competition, um, English sparkling wines still have everything to develop. Uh, think of uh, Champagne, of Cava, of Prosecco. Uh, all competitors have a longer and more successful trading history. Um, in England, you have still vineyards uh, that has um, yet been to have been planted. Uh, so uh, the um, the initial investment um, are not yet uh, paid off. England needs to develop the market penetration. And still don't have don't don't doesn't have a, a name a brand name uh, to to for 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 the wines uh, English sparkling wines can't be a name frankly um, no. and uh, and yet people uh, already subdivide uh, England and I don't understand I really am lost I mean champagne it's like Hoover 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 is fantastic and then it's vacuum but. Hoover is known by everyone. Champagne is a region and is known. And it has to be, uh, and before I think uh, talking about PDO and things like this, um, or appellation, it can be a jail. People don't understand how England is freedom and innovation. For me, England needs to, to stay or remain free uh, in terms of wines, uh, at last, or at least, and um, yes, uh, don't be, don't go too far and too fast. Um, the number of English producers are small, you know, compared to other regions around the world. 
So uh, the politics are not yet too involved uh, compared to the old world where uh, the stakeholders can pressure the industry. This is this is a luxury you have to, to consider. Yeah, very interesting. And I love the idea that uh, Appalachian can be a jail because uh, th those rules, uh, when you go to uh, what we still refer to as the new world, um, they tend to say, well, we don't want all of those rules, actually. Um, so uh, really interesting uh, that 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 point about um, yes, especially, especially that I am French, so I've been working in France. I know, I know what it is, and this is one of the aspects of England that uh, convinced me to to stay because you can create, because you can you can be innovative, you can you can basically uh, make a new fashion. It's exciting, as we were saying. It is indeed. It is. Earlier. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so here's a naughty question from me. Um, if you had the chance to make any of the most famous champagnes, um, would you go there and make that champagne? No way. For all the reasons I've, I've just told you. I certainly have got one of the best jobs in the world. And making wines in at Exton is, uh, is the best ever. That's a good answer. Pretty, I'm convinced. Um, uh, and what about um, a, a bit of advice um, for uh, someone who's just coming into the industry because uh, you have a lot of experience. Uh, I'm not aging you here or anything like that, by the way, but you've, you, know, you have um, dart in your career already. Uh, you mentioned uh, right at the start um, some of the early obstacles you faced. What would you say uh, to someone uh, like you coming into the industry now as advice uh to be ready for long journey uh, to to try to stay humble which is quite difficult when you are a winemaker i have to say uh to choose the right place to believe in in terroir i do believe in it it's important and yet uh, to be passionate certainly to believe on what you are going to create and to but also not to start um, um, if uh, you don't have a bit of cash because to have the less financial pressure possible. This is very important and people forget, tend to forget it. Easier said than done, but uh, I'm sure very good advice. And just finally, uh, what's your uh, desert island uh, wine? If you are stuck on a desert island, you can choose one of your own cuvées, by the way, that, that's allowed. Um, so if you were stuck on a desert island, but you could just have uh, something to drink, uh, what would it be? Something that can last more than a day. <laughs> <laughs> that would be useful. Especially on a desert, <laughs> on a desert island. Uh, so I will go uh, for Madeira. Uh, or port. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Both kind of underrated, actually, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And Madeira, because of the, again, that kind of uh, uh, freshness and acidity that can last forever. That's a good choice. Uh, I might join you on the desert island, but I'll, I'll certainly, in the meantime, come and join you at the uh, completed um, uh, winery because I'm desperate to have a look. So you we'll are sort that more, out. more than welcome. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Uh, but yes, come come to visit us. I certainly will. And thank you very much. Really fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out uh, to do that. Uh, it's been uh, it's been revelatory. So thank you very much, Corinne Seeley. Thank you. Bye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world 
to judge the best in the world. So let's round off, as ever, with some medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. This is from the 2022 uh, competition, uh, judged uh, back in uh, early May. The results uh, announced a few weeks later. And um, we hear a lot about the rapidly changing fortunes of this country's still wines. Um, Here's a trophy winner, uh, best in show, effectively, Uh, from Lime Bay Winery, Uh, Pinot Noir 2020. uh, It had already won a gold medal, 95 points, from a judging panel that included Sarah Abbott, MW, and also Matteo Montone, uh, Master Sommelier. Uh, They said of this, utterly delightful with fresh floral and delicate aromas, light and elegant, early summer soft fruits prevail, abundant with strawberries and nectarines, lightly spiced with clove and cinnamon and gently underscored with stalky greenness, vibrant, refreshing acidity and lingering silky tannins. Uh, I've uh, enjoyed this wine myself. It it really is uh, a worthy winner. So fantastic to see an English still wine doing so well. Uh, This is Lime Bay Winery in Devon, as I said, but the fruit actually comes from Essex, from the Crouch Valley, uh, rapidly becoming famous. I devoted my column to the Crouch Valley uh, in Club Inologique uh, a few months back. Uh, You can hear more about that in episode 45 of The Drinking Hour from uh, the lovely Chris Wilson. Uh, His urban winery in Cambridge uses fruit from there. And next, uh, here's uh, a a silver medal winner, uh, a sparkler this time with 93 points, uh, Coat Sincerely La Perfide. Blanc de Noir, Brut 2014. Uh, the sparkling wine judging panels were all overseen by Essie Avalan, MW, uh, a past guest on the drinking hour as well, talking champagne in episode 10, if you want to listen to that, if you haven't already. Uh, giving their 93 points, the judges, including uh, Svetslav Manolev, Master Sommelier, uh, said this, an attractive bouquet and palette full of autolytic character with peach, pear and plum fruits creamy and layered with great tension and subtle minerality next something entirely different on spirits this time an armagnac a trophy winner no less so again best in show uh, chateau de pello uniblanc 40 year old armagnac won at 98 points a gold outstanding but also a trophy to boot Incidentally, the judging panel was led by Joel Harrison, a mousquetaire de Armagnac, who you can hear waxing lyrical about uh, that particular spirit in episode 21. And uh, sticking with gold outstanding, that top category in the spirits process, another uh, spirit, obviously, a single malt whiskey this time, Lefroig Distillery, 10-year-old sherry oak finish, single malt Scotch whiskey, won 98 points. The judges, including Richard Patterson, OBE, Joel Harrison, again, and Colin Hampton-White said this, rich manuka honey, wood spice, cocoa dusted deliciously, sweetened by the dried stone fruit. Peter aromas meet a parched sherry palate rich with furniture polish and beeswax. Green, smoky and sweet. And finally, just to round things off, a sweet wine from Australia. Gralin Estate, Artisan, Rare Muscat, Non-Vintage. This from Margaret River in Western Australia. It won a high silver, 94 points, uh, just one point shy of a gold medal. Uh, The panel included Alex Hunt, MW, and Eric Zwiebel, MS, said this. uh, Festively fancy. Richly concentrated and complex with raisins, dried fruits, 
uh, walnuts, candied orange, aniseed and luxurious deep caramel. Intensely long finale, they said. And talking of finales, that's it from me for this week. My thanks to uh, Corinne Seeley from Exton Park, talking all things English. Uh, you, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like to follow me. Uh, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.